You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com. In the name of God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Res, you can have a seat. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, church, family. So good to be with you this morning. Um, We are right smack in the middle, or actually coming to the end of a great series in Exodus. I've loved revisiting Exodus. If you have, this is your first time kind of taking a a bit of a flyby tour of Exodus, I'd encourage you to continue to spend some time in it and study it. Um, As uh, even the parts that we, there's so much that that we miss that I want to encourage you to go and see. The story of Exodus has been this account, this really wonderful account of how God has chosen a people and drawn them out of slavery, out of captivity, into freedom, has set them free. Even in the most impossible circumstances where there was no way, God made a way. Where the greatest opposition stood against God's people, God saved them. He delivered them. Through the Red Sea, he defeated the Egyptian armies and redeemed his people. Last week, we talked, uh, we had Ken and Jack here, who, was, who did a great job, and he talked about what it looks like to live in this way of God that we see described in the Ten Commandments. This week, we're going to look at another aspect of this good way that God commends to us to live, his holiness. We're going to look at, we believe in God, the holy God. So let's continue our journey in the wilderness, if you will, with, uh, with our Israel brothers and sisters, our family. You can, we're going to be in Exodus 32. If you have your Bibles with me, you can, you can join me there. I'm going to be getting in verse 1. Now, just to give us some context, where are we in the story? Chapter 32, we're still on the mountain receiving the law. God is, is giving Moses the law. And while he's up there, his people notice, I mean, it was, it was probably a little bit of a ways. It was a, probably some time. They noticed, no, it certainly was some time, um, 40 days. His people notice he's not coming back, is he? Where's this guy? Scripture says they noticed he was delayed to come, to say the least. Gentlemen, we get, we get bent out of shape when our wives are like 10 minutes late. Well, this is, folks are down the hill going, where is Moses? What's happening? So they turned to Aaron, Moses' brother, and this is, what, this is what they say in verse 1. And said to him, to Aaron, come, make gods for us, who shall go before us. As for this Moses... The man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. (laughs) So Aaron gathered up all of the gold jewelry in the camp, and of course, he made a god for them, just as they asked, a golden calf. And he said, look, here is your god, folks. Here is the god who has brought you out of Egypt. That's what Aaron said. Doesn't this sound ridiculous? Wow, who would do such a thing? And he even built an altar for this god. After all they had been through, after all that God had done, they fashioned this golden calf and and ascribed all this worth, all this praise, all this saving action in history they give to this calf who can't even graze on grass, but it's just golden and sitting there on this altar. Friends, this is no small thing. This is the great sin. And it may look like on paper in the scriptures, like who would do that? We would never do such a thing. It's actually a little bit more complicated. I think we do this quite often, actually. We just may not notice it. This great sin, this grave sin, is to substitute a produced, a manufactured God in place of the sovereign God who actually lives, who actually did the work of saving us and continues to stretch out his hand above us and before us 
and provide for us and protect us. To replace the living God, this most holy God, with a, anything else, honestly, that is produced or manufactured. This is idolatry. And it all comes about in the most interesting ways. You notice what stirs this up in God's people. Why do they ask for this? Well, because they don't have God when they feel like they need him. He's not showing up on their terms when they want him. He's not right around the corner, it seems, they think. This God is, you know what's the trouble about the real God is that he's not made by human hands, so how are we supposed to control him? Israel can't tolerate this. It's too unknown, it's too slippery, it's too out of their control. With Moses gone, Faith and patience just seems like not an option. This is way too risky for us out here in the wilderness. So they reduce the risk. They, what we'd call mitigate the risk by domesticating God, producing this artificial replacement, something that's a little bit more manageable, something with some metrics, something that's controllable that we can get our, our hands on. A God exists that exists to meet their needs and to bring them comfort whenever they need it. A God on their terms, this golden calf. The hunger of this people for this comfort, for faith, for, for this sense of security, all, all wonderful desires, but these desires have actually run off and then brought them into this place of fantasy. And the effect of it is idolatry. Not the truth anymore, but something that's way more palatable, something that's way more comfortable. Even if, even if it's not true, and you know these people, this, even if it's a myth, it's okay we just need to feel a little bit better about our situation, whatever it takes to feel that comfort. We can't deal with the reality of a holy God who doesn't answer to our beck and call, who we think is on our terms, ready there for us at any time. We can't handle that reality. While all this is going on down at the bottom of the hill, okay? God's speaking to the, the, the true God is actually speaking to Moses and he says in verse seven, Moses, go down at once. You're not gonna believe what's happening. Bad news. Go down at once. Check this out. Your people, Moses, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have acted perversely. Interesting. Your people, Moses. Notice how these people have become Moses' responsibility now. Why? Why, why, of all things, why now is the, are these people Moses' responsibility? Look at verse 8. Because they have been quick to turn aside from the way that I, God is saying, the, the way that I've commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are our gods. O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Go down quickly, Moses. Man, these people. These people. We would never do that, right? What kind of people, now just, can we just imaginatively place ourselves in Israel's shoes just as much as we possibly can? I don't know how we could, but let's try. After everything that you've seen God do, you're out in the middle of nowhere thinking, how did we end up here? And you may be hungry. You may not know where in the heck Moses is, but how can you shake the memory of what God has just done? in Egypt, through the Red Sea, with, I mean, with, with manna from heaven. Goodness, people, how do you shake that? You know, God does so many amazing things in my life, and I have this brain that just seems to always remember only the tough things and the bad things. I, I, 
There's something in the human condition that doesn't have like this real permanent place for the miracles of God. We so quickly forget them. Can you relate it all to that? Man, these people aren't these people. This is us. We, we are these people who do this actually quite often. It's just not so obvious, but it's there. We don't wake up one day thinking, you know what? I've been a Christian for a while. I think today I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be idolatrous. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fashion for myself an idol, and I'm just, I got a new way of life ahead of me. No, it's not, it's not that obvious. Some people do that, and that's ridiculous, but I, don't, I think we're a little bit trickier than that. Idols don't, they don't just wake up one day as some sort of epiphany in our heads. They actually don't even um, really surprise us or appear out of no, nowhere. Idols are formed in the quietness in the hidden places of our hearts long before they see the light of day, but they're there. They're cooking. They're waiting. We feed them. We tend to them, but nobody can see them. And so we convince ourselves that our idols aren't actually there. And right when we're convinced that we are all alone, when nobody's looking, when God's servant hasn't been seen for a while, when God's far off, when we think God has abandoned us, when the tough gets tougher, that's when we cast our idols into gold. That's when we see them come out into the open. But they were there all along. The early church father, St. Ephraim, wrote, wrote this. When Moses went out of sight, the idol they had, worshiped, had been worshiping in their hearts could now come out into the open. Isn't that true? It's not if we have idols. We all have some idols cooking. It's just if we're honest with them. If we're honest with ourselves that we have them. It's just that some of them are a little bit more public and more visible than others. But we all have them. You can see how the Lord must um, really just lose some patience with his people. Kind of get a little bit agitated when after all that he's done for this people, these people just keep turning back to these idols, these things that they've been fashioning and wielding in their hearts. Look at verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are, how stubborn they are. Now let me alone, he's telling Moses, so that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. And of you, I will make a great nation. Don't worry, Moses. I'm not going to smoke you. I'm just going to smoke all these people. Does this seem like the kind of God that we come at Res and we, we worship and, and celebrate? Does this seem, doesn't this seem a little bit strange? Like, do we really worship a God who would have that kind of a reaction with his people? Who would say, hold me back, Moses. In fact, you're not going to be able to hold me back. I'm about to smoke these people right now for what they've done. Does that seem like our God? How do we make sense of this reaction? Is God just losing his temper? Is he just like a child who's not getting his way and has to throw his weight around? Is that how we understand God? Is he overreacting? Well, let's see if we can put this in a little bit in perspective. Let's step back for a second. The God who makes all things, who creates all things, and he makes them good. The God who is, when we say, oh, that's good, we're describing something that comes from God. It's in his nature. It's who he is. It's the source of all goodness, who has created all things, who gives all things, who makes things right, who makes things just, who makes things beautiful. This is who God is, and he's created all things. This God, this holy God, is a way we could summarize perfect beauty, perfect truth, perfect righteousness, perfect goodness, holiness. This holy God is faced day in and day out with a humanity that 
seeks to dismantle all the good things that he's made and the things he's bringing about with sin. Day in and day out. It's kind of like someone who prepares the biggest wedding banquet, the hugest party, spares no expense and invites all of his guests and his guests day in and day out dismiss and reject the invitation to come to the banquet. You guys remember that from our gospel reading? God is throwing a party and you don't want to miss it. And the banquet table is set for you, but day in, day out, his people reject and dismiss this invitation. Like the king in the parable who went out and smoked a bunch of people because of this thing. God isn't losing his temper. God is holy. This is the source of all perfect goodness. There's no space in him for imperfection. There's no, he he doesn't negotiate with evil. There isn't some sort of let's work this out with holiness. It is perfect. Anything less than that is imperfect. God is holy. He's not losing his temper. His anger, therefore, isn't like our anger. It's actually nothing like our anger that's riddled with sin and selfishness. Can you imagine this? God having anger that is not an ounce selfish, not an ounce sinful, but perfectly right and perfectly just every time. Always acting out of a self-giving love. Always acting out of uncompromised goodness. This is the anger that comes from a holy God. Man, that seems like a different kind of anger than stuff that you and I are used to. In the heat of this righteous anger, when God is about to do away with God's people, Moses steps in and he intercedes for God's people, calling him to remember something so interesting. We talked about this at the beginning of our Exodus series, this promise, this covenant that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to make their descendants like outnumbering the stars, to bring about this goodness upon the earth, this blessing that God was gonna give. Moses pulls out that card says, hold on a second, Lord. Don't you remember what you promised? This covenant you made with your servants to multiply their descendants. God, this wasn't a promise of wrath and of destruction. It was a promise of fruit. It was a promise to give your people a safe habitation, a land of their own. It was a promise of not doing away with, but actually giving your people an inheritance that would last forever. God, remember your promise. Folks, sometimes I see, um, as, a, as a pastor, I get to visit folks in really tough situations, and I see things that are really, really tough. And I think all the time, and Moses helps me pray this way, God, do you, are you forgetting your children? Do you remember this child that is suffering? Do you guys see that suffering around you? Do you ever run into hard things in people's lives? And you think, what in the world? This should not be. That burning in you that wants things to be right is a small participation in this holiness of God that burns with anger to make things right. And Moses actually teaches us to pray, not to just say, well, you know, it's God's will, I guess. No, but to intercede. God, do you remember your children? Do you remember the promise that you made to us? Make good on your promise. Moses teaches us, not that God needs reminding, he knows, but he pulls out of this this desire, some of that same holy anger, some of that desire to make things right and good in us when we pray, when we approach God in this way. 
God, remember your promise to bless us, to make things right. Even, and here's the thing, who are we to ask God to make things right when we're the ones constantly making the mess? And yet God listens to us in the righteousness of his son. Even despite our sin, God overlooks that and says, because of my son, I'm gonna make things right. I'm gonna make good on that promise. Not because you've earned it, but because Jesus is the righteous one. Speaking of which, Moses also, besides teaching us to pray when we're faced with this kind of brokenness and evil, Moses also reveals something to us of the one who is to come, if you think about it. The one who's gonna come and make good on this promise that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In him we see, in Moses, we see this figure of the one who is not an idol fashioned by hands, not made out of gold, but conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin. The holiness of God himself, not represented as some sort of like poor guy who has to speak up for God like a prophet, but God himself coming to dwell among his people, taking on their human nature. This is the one who announced that the reign of idolatry in God's people is coming to an end when he announces the kingdom of God is at hand. Who is this one? Do you recognize him? I hope you do. This is Jesus, the Messiah, our Lord, who not only satisfies the wrath of God in his own cross for our sake, but intercedes for us even right now with God the Father, working for our good, praying for us, directing all of human history to its good and perfect and holy end in communion with God. What idol, friends, can I ask you this? Can we just be real for a second? What idol can do that for you? What idol can do that? What idol in your life can truly and forever make things right? Is there anything that can compete with what Jesus has done? Is there anything that even comes close? Well, Sean, I mean, temporarily it's kind of nice to have this or that comfort or that thing that I turn to, the thing that I place my worries in that I really do make sacrifices to and worship. It brings me some comfort, but in the end, friends, it actually leaves you more and more empty, more and more longing for the one who is actually God come to save you, the one who prepares a place for you at his banquet table. There's no other idol that can replace what the Lord Jesus does for us. Who else, let me ask you it this way, who else out of pure love has made you? Who can take credit for that? Who out of pure love has made you and knows you? Who knows your inner thoughts? Who knows the things you desire? Even before you pray, who is it that knows you because he's made you other than Jesus? Who has formed you and rescued you besides the Father? and even still prepares a place for you at his table, even this morning at this table. What idol can do that? Is there one? I don't think so. I think we're all in agreement that like idols are bad, right? Idols, no, let's not do that. But I wonder what idols we actually don't see that we shape in our hearts. How different are we from these folks, in Israel, uh, these Israelites out in the wilderness, shaping idols? We all worship something. That's the thing about humanity. It's not do you worship, it's what do you worship because we're all made to worship. Let me ask you this. What is it that consumes you at night that you lose sleep over, that you worry about day in and day out? What's the thing that when you have free time totally preoccupies you, possesses you, 
when Lent comes around, our family has this discussion about idols. And the way we choose like what to fast from is we say, what's the, what's the one thing that's screaming inside of you right now saying, not me? That's probably what you should fast from. It's an idol. What is it that you justify as, hey, this is a good thing. Like these are, this is a good thing. But it's taken up your entire attention, your adoration, the very best of your time, the very best of your money, the very best of your heart. Even if it's a good thing, if it's taken up that place, it's become an idol because that place only belongs to God. I wonder, let's think about it this way. I wonder what creed we would stand and say if we were really being honest about the idols that we entertain in our hearts. I believe in God, the dollar almighty, maker of my self-esteem. And in his only son, self-loathing or self-adoration, two sides of one coin, who was conceived by my ego and born out of my convenience. What would be our creed if we really admitted the idols that we hide? I wonder what that would sound like. Thank God we have so much more to live for than those things, those idols. Thank God that we actually can stand and say a creed that's true about the God who should take a rightful place in our hearts and in our lives, taking the best of everything we have to offer. God, when we, when we stand and say we believe in God, we're giving him a centerpiece of our life, saying this only belongs to you. And we will name who this God is by recounting the things that he has done on our behalf. And so we go through the entire creed saying this God, just so we're clear, this God. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, not the idols that hide in our hearts. And folks, our confession that comes after the creed, it actually doesn't begin just at the confession when we get on our knees. Our confession begins with this creed because when we say we believe in this God, we're also at the same time saying we don't believe in these gods, right? We're tur- this is an act of repentance, of turning away from these idols and actually embracing and acknowledging the, the God that actually is, who deserves that preeminent place in our life. And folks, here's, here's, the, good, here's the crazy good thing about the God we worship. When we turn from gods, when we reject those idols, when we abandon the sin that so easily entangles us, you know what we're met with? A banquet. More guilt, more condemnation? No, a banquet. Forgiveness of sins. And not some like cheap gift, some sort of consolation prize, but the body and blood of God himself given to us. The most expensive of gifts that could be offered to us is offered to us when we turn to God who is holy, who freely gives himself to us. What good news that we serve a God who is merciful, who is totally holy, totally righteous, totally just in in being angry at sin. And yet in his mercy forgives us, who's patient with us, who invites us to the banquet table. Can you imagine a life lived at a banquet table of God where we don't have to go to anywhere else, but we're always fed, we're always satisfied. We live, we have pitched our tent at this banquet table of God. Can you imagine a life at the banquet table of God? Not feasting at any other table, but only at the table of the banquet of God. Sorrow and worry at that table, they're gonna be converted. They're gonna be turned into rejoicing to joyful dancing, to singing. You guys would be uncontrollable with the kind of joy that would spring out of you at the banquet of God. 
And at this banquet table, God isn't somewhere else. Even though he may, for some of us, be hard to see, be hard to sense, may be hard to believe that he is near, he is insufferably near to you. He knows you better than you know yourself. And he's closer to you than you are to yourself. He's here at this banquet table. And he's eager to grant you his peace. He's eager to grant you his comfort. He's eager to grant you salvation itself. And this isn't salvation and comfort and peace like we've known in the world before, but this is the kind of peace that surpasses understanding. It doesn't fit in your categories in your head, but it actually surpasses all of your expectations and even your understanding. It's the kind of peace that when you receive it, you walk away thinking, what was that? Don't you long for that kind of peace? This is the kind of peace that sets us free and sets our attention to what the scripture says is just, what is pure, what is pleasing, what is commendable, what is excellent, what is worthy of praise. In other words, it sets our minds to the holiness of God, the beauty, the perfect beauty of God. Friends, when we get on our knees and we stand and confess the creed and then we come to the table, we are opting in to cooperating with the way God does things in his holiness. And it is good. But it doesn't just come, we don't just kind of trip and fall into it. There's a turning point that we have to cooperate with that says, I'm going to reject these other ways, these other idols that I've kept hidden, and I choose to cooperate with God in his goodness and his mercy. To do that, we have to place our trust in his son, Jesus who has all the wrath of God has been directed at him, who has consumed that and come out of the grave on the other side, victorious, resurrected, and leading us into this new life. When you step out into this aisle or when you stand up from your seat, this is what you're getting yourself into. So be careful. The goodness of God awaits us at his table. Would you take a moment with me as we ask the Holy Spirit to continue to speak to us and point out those idols and then invite us to the table? You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.